From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Kulas. This is 7am. Scott Morrison's cabinet is a careful balance between those who backed him during last year's leadership spill and those who backed Peter Dutton. There are well-received appointments and others that are more controversial. Paddy Manning discusses who's ended up where and what it means. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has just held his first cabinet meeting since the swearing-in ceremony this morning. This is just into the newsroom. And so this is our task, team. I'm privileged to serve amongst you every single day. Let's launch in. Let's launch into it. Okay. Scott Morrison's just announced his new ministry a few days ago. What do his choices say about the sort of government that he's likely to lead? Well, I think it's really interesting. He's actually struck a very tight balance between the moderates and conservatives inside the Liberal Party. Paddy Manning is the contributing politics editor at The Monthly magazine. And I think it reflects the unique circumstances in which Morrison took the leadership. It was, you know, conservatives that knocked off Malcolm Turnbull, but it was moderates that installed Scott Morrison. And so he's there by virtue of a very small number of swing votes that helped knock Turnbull down and then swung around to him. He's only really there at the behest of the, you know, 40-odd moderates who had back Turnbull and didn't want change at all. He does need to kind of balance and heal the divisions between those two camps. Obviously, some key moderates have also left the party. Who has he replaced some of those people with? Uh, Kelly O'Dwyer, Christopher Pine were both senior moderates in the Cabinet who announced that they would quit well before the election and might now be regretting it, I suspect. And then there were also some Conservatives that, you know, put their hand up and said that they wouldn't be recontesting, you know, in the expectation that the Coalition was heading for defeat. So Steve Chobo uh, in trade or the Indigenous Affairs Minister Nigel Scullion from the, the country Liberal Party up in the Territory. So there was, you know, a mix of people that, you know, the government lost. But it wasn't clear whether in his appointments would Morrison be rewarding Conservatives particularly. So there was a lot of commentary you would have seen about how sort of left-leaning clique around Turnbull was gone and there was an expectation that the Morrison government would be more conservative than the Turnbull government had been. And I think that if you look at this ministry closely, I'm not sure that that holds water. I think he's made a genuine effort here to strike a balance, as I say. Hmm. So let's talk about some of the more well-received appointments first, if we can. Um, Let's start with Linda Reynolds. Yeah, well, Linda's an interesting appointment. She has got uh, long experience in defence. She was already in Cabinet as Defence Industry Minister, but before she entered Parliament, she was the first woman to make the rank of Brigadier. She's got a master's degree in strategic studies. She's worked for a defence contractor, Raytheon, So she spent a lot of years on the Defence Foreign Affairs Committee, so she's a good appointment for this portfolio. You've also got a situation of history in this portfolio of rapid turnover, and it's kind of a political graveyard. You know, they've very rarely had a Defence Minister that's lasted more than a year or two. So there's no doubt it's a testing portfolio, and uh, with this new structure that the Coalition's come up with, a Defence Industry Minister also in Cabinet, there is every chance that they can make a fist of it. Another fairly well-received appointment was Paul Fletcher into the communications and arts portfolio. Let's talk about him and about his professional history. Yeah, well, he he used to work for Optus, of course, and uh, 
for years before he came into Parliament, he actually wrote a book called uh, Wired Brown Land that basically set out how Optus's main competitor, Telstra, the incumbent telco, had stymied investment in broadband over uh, a long period. He was assistant to Turnbull as communications minister, so he's parliamentary secretary for communications. So he's got some background in the portfolio. But then when Turnbull became PM and Mitch Feifel was made communications minister, of course, he's, he's missed out on in those years. But he's still heavily involved in the design and implementation of the coalition's model for the NBN. And it's going to be very interesting now to see how he manages the completion of the rollout and then the transition to potential privatisation. Because I think that the coalition did not expect to win and were hoping to just shove this looming reckoning uh, off to Labor. And how do you think he'll go? Uh, Well, it could be ironic if he ends up as being, you know, former Optus executive uh, privatising the network in a way that it ends up merging with the infrastructure arm of Telstra. But, you know, he obviously knows the industry and uh, his appointment was welcomed in some quarters that you might have expected uh, would be more critical. And so let's turn now to Ken Wyatt. Ken Wyatt was, of course, probably the most spoken about Cabinet appointment. Yeah. Wyatt has taken on the... as um, Minister for Indigenous Australians, the first Aboriginal person to hold that portfolio and the first Aboriginal person to be uh, appointed to Cabinet. So he was the star of the swearing-in ceremony on, on Thursday. But he has got a very difficult job ahead of him. Uh, because the previous government under Malcolm Turnbull, the kind of shock rejection of the Uluru Statement from from the heart left the whole question of constitutional recognition up in the air. And what is Ken Wyatt saying publicly about the voice to Parliament? Well, publicly he's being very cautious, and in particular about a time frame. So he doesn't want to rush a referendum which fails. He wants to make sure that there is both bipartisan support and community support, including in particular, of course, Indigenous community support. So he was warning last week that there was the possibility of a 1999-style outcome in which the proposition gets put to the people, fails and then never gets heard of again uh, for 30 or 40 years. I mean, the problem he's facing is that some of his... Cabinet colleagues are absolutely not sold on the idea of a voice to Parliament. Only last week we had um, Christian Porter as Attorney-General describe the proposal as vague. So clearly there's a long way to go for the Coalition on this question. We'll be right back. The City of London in Andrew O'Hagan's latest novel is crumbling. But don't mistake this for pessimism. Instead, the author insists it's a necessary process for a better future. Change doesn't just happen because it's time for a change. Change has to be forced. We live in the end not in countries that are settled places. They're just imagined communities. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's Read This, I sit down with Andrew O'Hagan to discuss his latest, Caledonian Road. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. 
So, Paddy, the Morrison Ministry has been announced. A number of those appointments were well received. Others, of course, are more contentious. One of those is probably the combination of portfolios that have been given to Christian Porter. That's uh, Attorney General and Industrial Relations. Yes, so this has never been done before. The role of Attorney General is, it's much more of a traditional kind of first law officer role. So Christian Porter is a, you know, incredibly ambitious um, former WA Treasurer and he's taken on this portfolio of industrial relations. Now, the union movement was quite keen on engaging. You know, they've obviously come into this election with a huge expectation that they would be working with the Labor government and they've spent $25 million or something to that end, uh, you know, in their Change the Rules campaign, uh, which has now fallen flat on its face. And so they have to try to be conciliatory, I'm sure. Right. And he's said publicly, Porter has said publicly, that he's looking for a more law and order approach in the portfolio. Well, that's what he said in his first statement. Uh, was that he was going to concentrate on the law enforcement side of it initially, in particular on building sites. And so, you know, the union movement have been campaigning um, strongly for the abolition of the um, Australian Building and Construction Commission. Obviously, that's now not going to happen. And despite that kind of sentiment, the union movement said that they were uh, happy to work with him. I mean, from the union movement's perspective, anyone's better than Michaelia Cash. Paddy, are there any other appointments that have been a little more controversial in the time since they were announced? Yeah, uh, Richard Colbeck was a surprise appointment um, as Youth Affairs Minister, um, given he's past 60. This is the kind of ministry that would usually be given to a younger, kind of talented person who looks like they hold some promise in the party. What happened in this case? Well, obviously, it's the older voters that have really backed the coalition in, particularly you know, over the issue of the franking credit reforms that Labor was proposing. And it's a kind of unashamed recognition that um, that's the Liberals' constituency. Another controversial appointment this week was Jason Wood, who who picked up the portfolio of um, multicultural affairs. He's a, a former cop um, from Victoria who's been part of that campaign to, you know, scare every everyone witless about African gangs running riot in Melbourne. And then he gets made uh, Minister for Multicultural Affairs. Paddy, were there any were there any people who were not given portfolios, people who might prove to be a problem for Scott Morrison down the track? Within days of the announcement of the ministry, um, Barnaby Joyce, the you know former Nationals leader, was rattling the cage about how he's an expert at using the power of a backbencher, uh, and he had a few issues you know from his own electorate of New England that he wanted to make sure were addressed. And given the government only had a two seat majority, um, they better take them into account. There's there's plenty of scope for mischief making, uh, but at the moment, because Morrison has, you know, pulled off such a stunning win, uh, there's a real effort to, to unite the party. And who in this new ministry most has Morrison's back on that note? I think one of the most interesting characters is Ben Morton, who has been given the role of Assistant Minister for the Prime Minister and Cabinet. That's a strange kind of title, uh, but what it means is He's kind of the right hand, the PM's right hand man. He will have, you know, a particular kind of responsibility for those sensitive, you know, dealing with the cabinet um, and making sure that that works, uh, but also dealing with the backbench and and the party. So it's a it's a very sensitive, important role, even if it's not inside cabinet. If Morrison is going to be the great unifier, a lot of the work is going to fall. Uh, to Ben Morton as, as his right-hand man. It's a sensitive role and one to watch over the next 
you know, year or two. Paddy, thank you so much for being with us. No worries. Thanks, Elizabeth. This year, the Saturday paper celebrates 10 years as Australia's leading independent newspaper. In that time, it's built a peerless reputation for quality journalism, for telling stories that are ignored elsewhere. Subscribe now at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash subscribe. Elsewhere in the news, the new Minister for Emissions Reduction, Angus Taylor, has missed his first deadline for publishing emissions data. There was a Friday deadline for data from the December quarter, which has still not been released. And the Reserve Bank is expected to lower interest rates when it meets later today. If it does, it's a worrying sign for the economy, with a cut underscoring weakness. This is 7am. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. See you Wednesday. <laughs> 